The research on belonging is staggering. Putting all these rules into place, nine out of 10 employees believe that belonging is important or very important. Belonging now trumps strategy and culture. The research is telling us that belonging trumps that in terms of driving engagement, satisfaction, and performance in an organization. This is like a, this is a big shift. And then we're also learning by way of the research, employees are telling us, create more spaces of belonging, be a belonging leader, rethink the spaces and the interactions we have, and I'm willing to work for less money. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to this episode of Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, your host and a coach here at Quantibos. Our guest today is Brad Deitzer. Brad is the founder and CEO of Deitzer, and he is the author of a book that was just published yesterday, September 26th. We're recording on the 27th. The book is Belonging Rules, Five Crucial Actions That Build Unity and Foster Performance. Welcome, Brad. Thanks so much for having me. Brad, I want to dive in by reading a little bit right from the, the front part of the book, because I think it really sets the context for our conversation today. You write, organizations should make cultivating belonging a personal leadership imperative across the world. Belonging is the antidote to many of the most pressing issues organizations of all shapes, sizes, and varieties face. It allows leaders to recalibrate their approach to shift diversity, equity, and inclusion to a supportive position as a part of a more holistic belonging equation. This shift mitigates the politics of DEI and goes to the heart of human leadership. Belonging cannot remain an afterthought. It is a crucial component that sits at the top of what is needed for cohesion in organizations and group of all kinds, and it is a lever that leaders can pull to enact desirable, necessary, and unifying change in organizations and communities. What increasingly became clear to me is that it isn't up to other people to determine where I belong. Belonging is a personal choice. What pulled you into your focus on belonging? It's interesting. We, we've really been drawn into the conversation. We weren't actively seeking it. We work with organizations, leaders, all over the country, all over the world. And the issues that leaders are dealing with are becoming increasingly complex. And the political, societal, social nature of them has thrust us into some really complex, ugly, vitriolic conversations all surrounding people. And 
as we dug into, as we continue, as we've dug into the conversations with leaders, we started doing research and we've done research for many years on, on people on belonging on, on all of this. And it's just that there, there are changes that we're seeing in our research and the demands from, from leaders. What we see, what we're seeing in organizations is what we're seeing societally. And the reality is that there's an epidemic of loneliness that is pervasive across society, but it's also the same is true across organizations. And that loneliness is manifesting itself in a lot of different ways. And so our work has been, has, has, has really challenged us to say, how do we help leaders become more effective in the world we live in today? How do we create more human-centric leaders, more human-centered leaders, belonging leaders, if, if you will, that are able to look and understand that people are the drivers of our business. They are our ability to succeed and navigate what the what's happening in the world around us. And so that really is what drew us in. And our research continues uh, to tell us some really interesting things about attitudes and shifts in behaviors around the concept of belonging and its importance in the hierarchy of, of how leaders are leading. In the belonging rules, you identify five rules and then you talk about leveraging those rules and how leaders can leverage those rules. As I mentioned before, we hit the record button. There's so much here that we're actually going to record two episodes of conversations. Today, I want to focus on those five rules. And let me just list them out, and then I want to do as much diving into them as we can over the next 30 minutes. First, turn into the power. Second, listen without labels. Third, choose identity over purpose. Four, challenge everything. And five, demand 100% of the truth. In the chapter on turn into the power, you first introduce the concept of the movable middle. What do you mean by the movable middle, and why is that such an important, I would say, foundational concept to belonging? I love that that's your interpretation because it's exactly mine as well. We are living and working in a society of extremes, and the extremes are dominating if you think about leaders are responding to the loudest voices. And they're often not the middle, the people in the middle. If you think about social media, you look at the news, you look at the things that are happening just societally, it's often the extreme voices. And what we believe is the real power in leadership is understanding the movable middle. This is a group of people who come to work, who believe in the company, who want to do a good job, who are not going to poke their heads out and raise a bunch of issues. They're there just to be part of something bigger than themselves to move it forward. And we talk about this being not just the middle, but the movable middle, because this is a group of people that if we embrace this idea of human-centered leadership, 
that if we are more human with them, if we provide them information, if we trust them with the information that we provide, overwhelmingly, this group will make decisions for the good of the whole of the organization. And so it's a real shift in how we think about organizations. And I'm not discounting anybody in the organization, but invariably leaders spend too much time appeasing one group or another at the expense of the whole. And so this movable middle group, the core of the organization, what we've seen in our research shows, trust them with information. We don't need to color the information, bias the information, simply provide it to them in a format that we want them to understand. We want them to use it. We want to hear what their thoughts are. And it's amazing how the disconnected become even more connected. So the movable middle is a powerful concept organizationally, and I would argue societally as well. Brad, in the same chapter you write, we cannot belong or create belonging for others if we are unwilling to do what is uncomfortable by turning into the power. That turn, that willingness to face obstacles in our direct path, that confidence to speak up, that courage to ask the real question, that ability to recognize the necessity of the challenge and the readiness to do it, this is the power that belongs to each of us. This is where our commitment to belonging begins, not by ignoring or circumventing power, but by turning directly into it. That's a pretty powerful statement, especially if I'm down on the front lines. It is. And we start with the, we start with the concept that everyone's a leader. They may be the leader of one or the leader of many. But we all have the ability to participate and be part of a solution. And so sometimes that sometimes leaders aren't even aware of the power structures that exist that inhibit performance. Sometimes they it's it's not because they don't want to, it's it's simply not where they are. And so we never encourage someone on the front lines to be disrespectful. To, to, to step over their, their supervisor or their supervisor's supervisor and have to know it all. But what we do encourage is for people on the front lines to begin to recognize, and this goes from the front lines to managers to supervisors, it doesn't matter where you sit in the organization, anywhere across the spectrum of the organization. The idea is that there are structures that are there. So asking questions, having the courage to ask a supervisor a question. And as you read in the book, one of the words we really encourage leaders never to use is the word why. And we believe that why is destructive and it's divisive. Why did you, why did you do this? Why didn't we do this? Why? We're on the defensive. As opposed to no matter where you are in the organization, no matter where you sit, the conversation can change with, hey, can we talk about? I've seen something. I'd love your perspective. And sometimes inviting people into difficult conversations 
creates that bridge, if you will, that brings people together. And that's what we're trying to do. This first rule is so important because if you look at what's happening in organizations, there are so many structures that exist that A, we're not aware of, B, we don't talk about, yet they're there. So what do we do? We waste time as leaders trying to circumvent them. We just don't talk about them, but we'll circumvent them. And this is true in virtually every complex environment that it's easy, let me hire XYZ as my solution around this. Well, that's fine, but that's not turning into the power. That's circumventing the power. And what, does, what happens is it becomes a temporary solution, often an unfunded one or funded for a short period. We appease people. Who are we appeasing? Going back to your last question, we're not appeasing the movable middle who just wants what's right and best for the organization. We're often appeasing an extreme going, look, we did this, but we're not really committed to it. So it goes to this conversation that you and I have talked about, I think, for years about compliant and committed. Are we compliant in how we lead our companies and how we do our jobs, or are we committed? The committed leader, the human-centered leader that's committed is willing to have the difficult conversations, willing to recognize, even if I can't change, even if I can't change the power structure, the conversation that it's there, the awareness that it's there, the willingness to embrace in dialogue, there's, there's courage in that and there's power in that. You mentioned rule number two, which is listen without labels. And you say labels can bring us inside or leave us outside. One of the things that really was a powerful read for me in this chapter was the story about the eyes of Texas controversy at the University of Texas um, that surfaced after George Floyd's murder. Um, and your engagement in that personally, in, in addressing that, um, but also some of the journalism that followed after the, the work that you were a part of. I'd love to have you share a part of that story with our listeners. I, I love that story because in so many ways, that story is, is the beginning of this book, even though it's chapter two in the second rule. I was brought in at a, at a really difficult time in our country's history. There were conversations that were happening all over the place in organizations. There were disagreements. And so I was brought in to this conversation and I found very quickly that my job wasn't to solve a problem. My job wasn't to create a solution. I thought I came in and I, I had the right solution. I thought, wow, this is the answer. And so my first thing to do was to say, can I talk to people? Give me diverse voices to talk to, people with different perspectives. And so I had eight interviews. Next day I had eight more and the next week I came back for eight more and eight more. And so I did, you know, I did 32 interviews and I thought that I would know everything I need to know. Typically we can go 20 to 50 interviews, sometimes a hundred interviews that tells us what we need to know. But 3,500 discussions later, 
3,500 one-on-one discussions later, I realized it wasn't about the outcome. It was about giving people voice. It was about giving people a space to be heard. The president was so clear in this conversation. We want to create a place where we can come together. We don't have to agree to belong. We just need to create a shared framework to have the understanding, the conversations. And those conversations changed my life. Some of the most vitriolic, hateful of those conversations were with people who are now my friends, people that I genuinely value. We don't always see the world through the same lens, but we've begun, we've, we've been able to come together and find commonality on what we agree and have a framework to talk about the things we don't agree with. And so that's really the underpinning of that, of that story. Um, and the story we really focused on part, part of the way through that project, a friend said to me, Brad, you know, how does it feel to be losing? You're losing. The media is, is crushing you on this. And I said, I got really upset by it. And I said, losing? And the more that I thought about it, the more I thought, no, this isn't about winning or losing. This is simply about listening, learning, engaging. And if my goal is to make sure that the truth, the real history is put forward, that is winning, giving the movable middle the real information. We never once said something was good, something was bad, believe this. We simply said, here, here are the facts, here is the history, here's the information. We trust people to do whatever it is that they want to do with it through their own unique perspectives. And so it was a powerful, life-changing lesson, not only each of the conversations, and they were difficult, they were rough, they were raw. There were many people who pointed in my face, you don't belong here. You know, you're old, you're white, you're fat, you're everything. And that wasn't a few conversations, that was hundreds of conversations that I don't belong in the conversation. And what the reality is, is that that lesson taught me that when we listen and we're open, that we all have a place in the conversation. And that really is the bottom line of what this book is about, is how do we create these spaces for people to come together for the conversations that we're avoiding, the conversations that we don't really want to have, but the conversations that are critical from an organizational perspective as well from a societal perspective. And the other thing I think you touched on is, is that one of the things and the name of the chapter is comma, who is white comma. And that's a label that in, uh, in one of the stories that was written about me, Brad Deitzer, comma, who is white comma, and it went on to basically discredit my ability to work in very complex, socially charged, racially charged, politically charged environments. That's my career. That's what we do. We bring people together. We bridge differences. Yet the label in that case was who is white. Now, people who knew me looked and said, are you, are you crazy? I mean, you are. Why in the world would that bother you? And it was a similar conversation to my colleague and my peer who my partner in this effort 
who was black. One article started with his name, comma, who is black. And his article happened first, and he reached out and said, Brad, he said, I, I'm so hurt that that's the lead of this story, not the fact that I'm a scholar, that I'm research, that I love this university, that I care about the outcome, that I bring a wealth of experience. I've been reduced to a label so someone can make a picture of in their mind of who I am, what I look like, and therefore what I believe. And the power of listen without labels is how do we eliminate these labels from our society? And it starts with good and bad. It starts with positions and titles. They're not necessarily helpful to understanding each other as humans. You write, this rule requires us to hear what is actually spoken without judgment while engaging the unspoken with humanity and heart. In other words, it requires us to understand the whole of what is shared and limit our natural inclination to translate meaning by applying our own or someone else's labels. As I read this chapter, I was thinking about a movie that I watched on a recent Delta flight. It's called The Steepest Climb. I don't know. Have you seen it? I haven't. It's hard to find. It's in their documentaries uh, on the screen. Uh, the Steepest Climb is a documentary about Delta's movement through COVID, but it touches on their early days, goes through 9-11, through their bankruptcy, and through COVID. And as you know, George Floyd's murder happened right in the midst of great uncertainties around COVID. And in this movie, The Steepest Climb, Ed Bastian, who is the CEO of Delta, stepped aside from exclusively focusing on the airline's response to COVID and started listening to the black employees of Delta who felt they had been devalued. And the data was there, as far as I understand, that there was not pay equity in all cases. There were not the same kinds of opportunities in all cases. And in the midst of saving his airline from this economic and, and health crisis, he also realized he had to save his airline from this human crisis. And he listened without labels. Choose identity over purpose. That's a challenging one. I mean, we all talk about um, aligning the people of our organization with its purpose. And, and I certainly have spent a lot of time coaching there. And it's an important message. And, and it's interesting because I was recently developing a group coaching session for employees who had been moved from the hourly into the salaried ranks of an organization based on merit, not education. And one of our group coaching sessions was around having career conversations. How do I, you know, amidst all of my peers who are graduates of colleges and universities and so forth, um, so there are all those imposter syndrome things going on, et cetera, et cetera. How do I have a meaningful conversation with my supervisor about my career and my career path? And 
as I was developing the curriculum for this group coaching program, it struck me that back when I was in my early career days, my purpose wasn't this grand mission of my employer. It was putting a roof over my head and the head of, you know, feeding myself and my partner. So as important as it was to work for X organization and whatever value I could bring to them and the services they were offering and so forth, that wasn't my purpose. My purpose was keep this job, take home the pay, pay the bills. Choose identity over purpose. Tell us about this rule. So this rule is designed to, to, to challenge a little bit of that conventional wisdom, right? Because we see so much. We hear so much about purpose. And we believe that purpose is fundamental to the conversation. But we also believe that purpose is one element of the overall identity conversation. And, and so, especially as you talk about generations, generations wanting to belong and need to belong to something bigger than themselves. So this rule really focuses on the idea that the organization, and we see this in the most sophisticated organizations, where we, we ask you know five basic questions around identity. And what happens is the organization tells us that the purpose is often not as clear as the leaders think it is. That the characteristics, the things that are central, enduring, and distinct about the organization are not as clear. Some of them are. When we get to values, the whole value conversation is changing. And we're doing major research in this area, and we're seeing these one-word values, integrity, honesty, whatever those words are, are not effective in organizations. We're looking now at more at phrases and, and ways to bring these to life that create greater meaning. But when we think about identity, it's, it's those humanized values and a set of behaviors, behavioral expectations that form the nucleus of, of, of the organization. So we look at identity as this kind of broader construct. And I think the, the easiest example I can give you of, of why this is so important, and maybe it's an, maybe it's an airline example. You know, I, I always think about it from a football example. We work with NFL teams. We work with collegiate uh, teams, universities, major organizations all over. And, and, People in the same industry tend to say, well, the purpose is very similar, or it can be. There can be some nuance. In the NFL, well, our purpose is to win championships. You know, there, it's to win championships. It's to serve our community. It's to provide hope and a great experience. Great. 32 teams. Are we all the same? Do we all belong to the same thing? Is it just our jerseys? that make us look different? No. And that's the power of identity. What differentiates us? If you look at one airline to another, the airplanes are, I'm not the expert, I'm on them all the time, but there's different models, but they're, they're basically the same structure, the same or similar number of seats, two and two, three and two, whatever the, the structure is, 
They're the same. They have a different name on the outside, but what differentiates them? The identity. The purpose may be different. How we serve may be different, but it's the characteristics looking at Delta, the characteristics of what is central, enduring, and distinct, what has been true, what is true, what must be true going forward, what differentiates one airline from another, the values, how our people manifest those values, live those values, act those values is different. We see that with different airlines, the different, we talk about as personalities. And then we have set of behavioral expectations. And, and I think this is a really big piece of what is missing from organizations is that the nucleus is, is really, we rely on the, the value piece of it, but it's really the values and the behaviors. The values are the we, we collectively aspire as this airline or this organization or this team, but it's the behaviors at all the levels of the organization that we hire for, train for, reward for, hold people account. That's the me. And so that's where this whole identity equation elevates. And if we move just away from purpose and we add to it and we add that broader uh, construct of what it means to be part of this organization, what happens is we create a different level, a different measure of belonging. And so that's why that rule is so important. I really found great value in how you focus on the behaviors. How do we manifest ourselves in this organization? Because yes, what's in your head counts, but it's how you live it that makes a difference. Challenge everything. The ability to question and challenge is core to what it means to lead. In fact, of all the skills required of leaders, the ability to ask the right questions, challenge everything, and not give in to the compliant answer may top the list of importance. I thought leaders were supposed to have all the answers. A lot of leaders think they're supposed to have the answers, but the human-centered leader knows that she or he doesn't have all the answers. We're human beings. And it's okay to be vulnerable and be open to that fact. I love each of the rules for different reasons and the way they come together. Challenge everything is so powerful to me. And why it's stated here is we live in a society that you've got to be careful what you challenge. Because if you say the wrong thing, you challenge the wrong thing, then you're erased. You're canceled. You can't lead. We can't lead if we don't challenge. And so one of the skills that I bring to my team, no matter what it is that we're working on, no matter what solution we create for a client, there's an art to the challenge. And, and so much of this, Brian, is really kind of through this lens of, I see in organizations that there's conflict. You look in society, there is massive conflict. Who leads the conflict? Politics. Politics. Politicians need conflict. And what's happening is organizations are modeling that behavior. And so what happens is if we think about conflict as two sides coming together, two forces coming at each other, one has to be right, the other has to be right, but one has to be right and one has to be wrong. What happens? We stay in that constant state of friction. It's unhealthy. It is not good in organizations. 
It's not good in departments. It's not good in families. Our own families have the same conflict where I've got to be right and you've got to be wrong. And there's that hierarchy. And what this chapter really tells us is we've got to move away from the concept of conflict and embrace the idea of challenging everything. Challenge is two sides coming together with the spirit, the openness, the humanity to say, I'm bringing my perspective, you're bringing your perspective. We both may be right, but how do we challenge each other in a way? Or how do we challenge this idea in a way where we are coming up with a more creative solution or by way of the conversation, we're validating one perspective or the other, not going into it with that. And so I love the idea of, you know, challenging is about having sparring partners, people who don't always agree with us and working on this art of understanding how to have these conversations, how to say, you know what, you might be right, Brian, but what if, if I could do one thing to change your idea or my idea, what if we both put one little idea in the middle of the table? You know, one, one small change to that idea. What would it be? And it's amazing how the brain and how our minds begin to become open to, well, sure, you're not attacking me and my idea. It's just one little change to get to a better solution. What about this? And what about this? And you bring this to a group and it changes the dynamic and it changes the outcome. Again, to me, I look at challenge everything as a creative force. I just want to briefly read a few quick quotes out of this section of the book that I think are food for a lot of reflection for leaders. You touched on this first one, or you, you talked about it. Challenge is not conflict. Traditional leadership values knowing, but knowing is a temporary state. Asking better questions can shape the future of your organization, and when done right, challenge is never personal. Rule number five, demand 100% of the truth. When we don't demand the truth, it fuels an environment that lacks trust, understanding, empathy, and belonging. Not 80% truth, huh? No. And unfortunately, what our research shows and our work shows, in even the highest performing organizations, it's about 85% of the truth is where their leadership teams go. Their organizations are encouraging that. 100% of the truth is hard. It's really, really hard. But what we're saying, and again, the research is telling us, that organizations are somewhere in the 80 to 85 high functioning, and many organizations are beneath that. Why? Because it's easier for us to find people, you and I agree on this, we know the rest of the group doesn't, we're not gonna make traction, so let's not bring it up. Let's go talk by the water cooler. Let's go talk offline about this. And we know we're right. We'll, we'll go have that conversation. But the gap, that 15% gap, that 20% gap, whatever that gap is, it could be a 10% gap. You could be super high performing. But that gap is what is inhibiting our ability to ultimately be the best that we can be. It's inhibiting the conversations, and they're often the conversations around social and societal issues. Because as leaders, 
We either know what we have to do because it's a mandate and we're not really willing to talk about it, or we're uncomfortable talking about it because of the need to be overly politically correct or the rawness it requires and the uncomfortable environment that it creates. But what we believe belonging rules require are for leaders to be comfortable in the uncomfortable. Now, we can have a difficult conversation in that 15% of the things that are not spoken. And as long as it's not personal, as long as I am not attacking you for your view and you're an idiot and we go back to those labels and how could you think that and wait till I go tell and we really build that psychological safety, that trust in the organization at the highest levels to have the conversations, we change our companies, we change our outcomes because that gap, that gap is important to close. Do I think we can get to 100%? I hope we can over time. But my goal is to begin to close that gap bit by bit. And when people come to our learning labs and our institute, we challenge them. We challenge the full truth. We ask questions to make sure that the truth, that there's another. Is that, is there more to the conversation? Help me again, inviting people into it um, so that people feel comfortable. And I think that's, as we talk about belonging leaders, that's the new role of the leader to invite people with different opinions, with different belief sets, to come together in a shared framework of understanding and dialogue. When we do that, we expand our ideas, we expand our creativity, we invite people in and what happens? The research on belonging is staggering. Putting all these rules into place, nine out of 10 employees believe that belonging is important or very important. Belonging now trumps strategy and culture. The research is telling us that belonging trumps that in terms of driving engagement, satisfaction, and performance in an organization. This is like a, this is a big shift. And then we're also learning by way of the research, employees are telling us, create more spaces of belonging, be a belonging leader, rethink the spaces and the interactions we have, and I'm willing to work for less money. I mean, that's a, that's a real big shift in how leaders lead and how organizations are now approaching the future. We're going to have to wrap this up in, in just a moment here, Brad, but the, the question that I often ask leaders to ask is, what else could be true? When I come into a situation with my interpretation of what's going on here, what else could be true? We've only covered part of the book. There's another whole section on leveraging the rules for leaders. I want to sit down and talk about that, and we'll be doing that in the, the weeks to come. Last, last word for our listeners, Brad, on belonging rules. I, I, it's, it's a book that I hope that people will read. And I hope there are things in the book that you love and you say, yes, I know that to be true. And I hope that there are things in the book that you look at and you struggle with and you go, mm, not so sure. And I hope there's things in the book that you go, wow, I really don't know where Brad came from on that. But the whole reason I wrote the book 
is to engage in the conversations and to give leaders not the what to do, but how to begin to have these conversations and to begin to bring people inside of their thinking, their organizations in different ways to drive unity, to propel performance, and to really be the model for how we address so many things that are going on in our society that we're sitting on the sidelines on. So the book is here to challenge you, to give you tools, to help you hopefully give some courage to say, I want to be, I can be a better belonging leader, a more human-centered leader. And that's, that's my hope. And my also, my other hope on this is, is that people reach out and say, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this. How do I share this? How do I engage other people in this conversation? That's the conversations we want to have. Bring people inside. Let's change society. One, one person, one division, one company, one leader at a time, whatever it takes. But I, I think we can do it together. Brad Deitzer, Belonging Rules. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me in. And thank you for always making me feel like I belong. I am grateful for you.